When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. English Civil War deserters are captured and forced to aid the search for treasure in A Field in England, available on demand starting April 8th. Nicolas Cage is an ex-con faced with the choice of redemption or ruin in Joe, premiering on demand April 11th, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on the show, we accept that we are relics of an ancient time that's now changing. Let's call it the age of the film critics as we review Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some films you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. In honor of Ghost Dog, which features a memorable scene of its title character, played by Forrest Whitaker, practicing with a samurai sword, even though most of the time he sticks with more practical guns. Uh, we stage an actual sword fight. We were going to have an audio soundscape. We mic'd up some stage swords, had an epic battle. Matt, you jumped off multiple walls and did somersaults. At one point, I managed to fly across the room, and I didn't even need wires. Unfortunately, we forgot to press record. So instead, <sighs> you're going to have to settle for our discussing some recommendations for streaming films and TV series that feature swords or sword fighting. I said I was willing to do it all again. You just refused. I was Staunchly exhausted. refused. <laughs> All that flying. It's tiring. <laughs> but first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Now we've got three interesting titles here this week. The first one, something I'm really looking forward to catching up with. I missed it at the end of the year with the, you know, 2013 award season hullabaloo. It just fell through the cracks for me. And it is The Invisible Woman, directed by Ray Fiennes, and available on demand on April 15th. So you can celebrate uh, the end of tax season. Treat yourself to just what you're going to be in the mood for right after you hand those taxes in. A biopic about Charles Dickens. Right, Allison? Yep, that's exactly what I said when I turned in my taxes. Yeah. Here's my taxes. Now, where is my Dickens biopic? Uh, yeah, Ray Fiennes, he directs the film. He also stars in it as Charles Dickens. The film is about this affair that Dickens had with a teen actress while at the height of his career. You have uh, Felicity Jones in it as well. She plays the uh, the young actress. And Kristen Scott Thomas plays her mother. And uh, Ray Fiennes is an actor who I, I enjoy. I feel like I'm enjoying him more and more lately. I feel like he's on a really great run. He was he great. He seems to be having more fun. He does seem to be having a lot of fun in the Grand Budapest Hotel. He's quite delightful in that. Uh, he was good in Skyfall. Not super funny and witty, but he was good in that as well. 
and uh, and 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 I think he's he's an interesting director too. Did you see the Shakespeare adaptation he made, Coriolanus? I did not. It was a really interesting movie. I mean, it was a little strange. It was one of those movies where they take the text and kind of transpose it to a different time and place. And I'm not a Shakespeare expert, so a lot of times I find myself kind of straining to follow it. But still, you could see that this was the work of a very intelligent director and a very uh, knowledgeable guy who knows his, his Shakespeare. And uh, it was a good film, and uh, I, it just definitely made me go, oh, Ray Fiennes, you know, not just a good actor. He's got some – he might have a directing career in front of him. So for all those reasons, I'm really looking forward to seeing The Invisible Woman. This is a very pretty cottage. Thank you, if a little small. The rewards of our profession are rarely monetary, but I would have it no other way. No one is entirely useless in this world if they may lighten the burden. My daughters are fine young women. Sometimes I am anxious for their future. I understand. If I may be of assistance in any way. I cannot risk Nellie's reputation. I hope that nothing I could offer would compromise her. Good night, Mrs. Turner. Good night, Mr. Dickens. Good night, ladies. Good night. That's going to be available again on VOD starting on April 15th. I have to say, I am a little weirded out that Kristen Scott Thomas, who was Ray Fiennes' love interest in The English Patient, is now the mother of his love interest. That bothers you? Well, it's just funny. I mean, I realize the point of this is that there's an age difference right. between them, but it is a little entertaining. I find nothing wrong with it. I think it's the natural way. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> All right. Our next pick is an, is an interesting sounding movie as well. Uh, this one is called Hate Ship, Love Ship, available on April 11th. And I'm just going to read the plot synopsis as well as the actors in it. And you will see why, uh, at least from the cast alone, you go, oh, this, this is intriguing. Uh, Joanna, played by Kristen Wiig, is a profoundly shy, unadorned woman who is hired by Mr. Macaulay, played by Nick Nolte, as a housekeeper and primary caregiver to his granddaughter, played by Haley Steinfeld. Uh, despite her outgoing nature... Uh, the young girl c carries wounds from the death of her mother years before, complicated by the circumstances of that death for which her grandfather still blames her father, Ken, played by Guy Pierce, who is a hapless recovering drug addict with a certain ragged charm. So you have Kristen Wiig, Nick Nolte, Haley Steinfeld, and Guy Pierce all in the same movie. Uh, done. I'm in. Sounds very interesting. So that's Hate Ship, Love Ship, available on. April 11th, and hopefully by that time I'll have an easier time of pronouncing that title. And finally, I have to admit, something I'm probably not going to see because I haven't seen the original movie, but uh, I figure uh, uh, fans of the original movie will be interested in this. It is Wolf Creek 2, the sequel to the previous Wolf Creek. Uh, that's going to be available on April 17th. It's directed by Greg McLean, who also made the first film. And the plot synopsis I have here is, Three backpackers visit the notorious Wolf Creek Crater. Why are all these names hard to pronounce today? Where they are pursued by a notorious local across hostile wasteland to survive. They'll have to outwit the man behind the monster. Allison, have you seen the original Wolf Creek? I have. It is brutal. It's like, a, is it a torture porn film? Does it yeah, qualify? It classified as that. It kind of came out around that time. Yeah, and it, it definitely has some scenes of violence that are just 
Shocking. Shocking. Yeah. And given that this one is made by the same team, I imagine this will be probably not for the faint of heart and and rainbows sunshine and lollipops like and vivisection they have a lovely picnic at the wolf creek yes boy i expected this to go badly we've had a lovely (laughs) afternoon well now let's go home oh look the car started perfectly fine no problems whatsoever and we've got a full tank of gas excellent it'd be a hell of a this road is not even closed (laughs) a lot of work to do for a joke but it'd be really funny it would be pretty funny if it was 90 minutes of not scary things happening (laughs) Like a relationship drama. (laughs) It would be a bold sequel. Yes, absolutely. Well, for a sequel that is not at all like that, but I'm sure is very uh, disturbing and horrific for uh, fans of the first movie who are prepared for a a grueling experience in haunting terror or whatever that old expression is. That's Wolf Creek 2, and it will be available on April 17th. Those are Samurai Showdown. Samurai Showdown. Samurai Showdown. Yeah. Hey, DTN, yeah. how dare you challenge me? You will die for the tip of my score today. It's born, born, young lord, raise your swords. 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 from the slums of Shaolin. Golden claw talent, twirling one swirl of the fatal swords. Split your island. Ruth Killer B, stinkers back on the swarm again. All right, our subject for Q shots on this episode is sword, sword fighting, sword fighting scenes. And I have to admit, Allison, that uh, the perils of picking a topic based on a movie you haven't yet watched, I sort of, based on like pictures and what the movie was about, I sort of assumed that Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, would have more sword fighting. Uh, it doesn't. It's got one scene where he doesn't even fight anyone. He's just sort of practicing you know, his moves with a sword and like a shorter blade. Uh, but th- th- there's an element of uh, he kind of treats his weaponry the way that, you know, kind of samurais would treat their their swords with very great care and sort of every movement is very measured and composed and graceful. And he, he has this way. Yes, yeah. this way of holstering one of his his pistols is to sort of twirl it around the way a samurai might twirl a sword before then sheathing it, you know, that there's this very kind of. The theatrical and dramatic aspect of it. So I, you know, and and how how often are we going to have the chance to do this topic? It's kind of a fun topic to do, and we'd already prepared, so it was too late to turn back anyway. But yeah, I think, and I think that's one of the things that I kind of enjoy about sword fighting in movies is it is dramatic, it is theatrical, and it is, uh, you know, it's it's similar to a, a kung fu fight or you know a martial arts sequence. That there's something very theatrical, very dramatic about it and very visual yeah. about it. You know, the choreography, the movement, it's uh, something that's just it's just perfectly made for cinema. Yeah, I agree. And uh, in the same way that dancing is in the, you know, right, because it's, it's a dance with swords. Right. Uh, I will say that I feel it may be even trickier to shoot sword fighting than it is to shoot like a physical just like your kind of like punches, punches. and stuff. Yeah. Because uh you know, it's it, you have to have a defined sense of space because you have someone kind of at arm's length. And I, I feel that the films that do it well, you don't even think about this. But then when you see, you know, when it's not done well, it's just incoherent. There's no satisfaction to it. I did want to give a shout out to a few films that we're not going to, that are not our picks, okay. but that are some of, our, of my favorites that are available. To, For um, guard ourselves from criticism. I like yes. it. Yes. Well, I, you know, have to mention Princess Bride, which is both a, uh, 
a meta sword fight scene and a, a real sword fight scene at the mm -hmm. same time. Very satisfying. Um, I am not left-handed. Uh, that's available for rent on Amazon. Kill Bill has a, some particularly great sword fighting yes. scenes of both the samurai tradition and then there's like the kind of kung fu uh, moment where she flashback. Um, that's and weren't those so bloody that they had to be turned the, the sort of to avoid getting a, a NC-17? He had to make the big fight scene black and white. Isn't that wasn't that the story? Right in the the eighty-eight, the crazy you, yeah. against the crazy eighty-eights where she kills where Uma Thurman kills like I don't know fifty guys was so incredibly bloody that the only way to uh, pass the MPAA was to there's a moment where suddenly the scene becomes black and white, and then at the <laughs> end, as soon as it's over, it becomes color again. And I think that was specifically done to. Uh, uh, negate the redness of the blood and the and to make it more uh, palatable. Interesting. I've not heard that, but that's pretty yeah. funny. Well, it, when you think about it, there's nothing scary or horrifying at all about blood. If it's not red, well, maybe it's Kool-Aid. Maybe all these guys have Kool-Aid in their pockets. Exactly. She's just stabbing them in the Kool-Aid <laughs> juice boxes. Well, that is available for rent from all the usual spots. Um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon mm. is uh, new to Netflix and is also on Amazon. That's a good Some one. Great sword fighting scenes, including mm. the one between Michelle Yeoh and Jiang Ziyi. I love like where they're switching different um, weapons. Right, it's fantastic. Um, and uh, the great Toshiro Mufune does has like participated in his fair share of uh, cinematic sword fights. Many of his films are available on Hulu Plus streaming, uh, and I I don't want to pick just one but uh they're all out there mm -hmm. and um interestingly i return of the jedi not streaming anywhere but does have a good uh sci-fi version of a sort that's fight. the one you would hold up return of the jedi i'll put it down more there. than uh even the later movies which were like the you know meaning the the yes, prequels the which prequels. were certainly not great films but I, they definitely put more attention into the sword fighting agreed but i felt like they those films in general felt so much less physical to me right that i just you know i, I felt at that point that it just seemed like people in front of a green screen yeah kind of waving you know <laughs> <laughs> it just you know that's it, how they do the sound effects right some guy just stands I next think it's just to like a comb and uh <laughs> they actually make the actors paper. do it as they're as yeah. they're performing i try and stop that's them. why the performances are so bad is because they're constantly Constantly having to do their own sound effects. <laughs> pew, pew. I had no idea I'd have to do my own Foley work right, in this. Right, right. I mean, that's what really... i talk to SAG. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting divide between those the two eras of Star Wars because I don't think anyone could argue that the ones in the prequels are, you know, not better choreographed, more intricate, more athletic. I mean, when you go back and watch the first Star Wars and it's, you know, Alec Guinness and David Prowse right. as Darth Vader. I mean, they're literally... <laughs> the amazing athleticism. They, yeah, I mean, it, it has all the fluidity of a rock'em, sock'em robots fight. I mean, it's just like they're just like waving their arms back and forth at each other. But you might also say that that scene had stakes in it, you know, and these characters who, even though th this was like where they first, at least in our eyes, we see them together for the first time, it had already been built up as a thing. And and it really let you focus on the characters more than the amazing flippity doos. Whereas in those later movies, they're almost maybe too choreographed. You know, there's this. It's like, and granted, they're like magical Jedi's or whatever. But the, the way that they're just, you know, these fights that go on for like ten, fifteen minutes, that just these incredible moves. It's like no one could ever fight this perfectly, which I, I think is also something I sometimes feel in martial arts movies when they're, you know, you have to sort of strike that balance between, you know, making something really impressive and physically awe-inspiring 
and, and making it have physicality. Yeah, and making it seem believable, if not realistic, believable that a fight might happen in this way. And sometimes I know, like in that last that last fight in the last Star Wars movie between Anakin and Obi Wan, where they're jumping on things and the whole planet is melting around them, and it. But meanwhile, they're doing the most, you know, flipping the swords around their backs, and not to mention those lasers, the laser swords. I'm going to do the George <laughs> Luke and call them laser swords. Like they're, you know, like one touch of your hand on those things, and your like your hand just lops right, off. It's gone. So to do these incredibly elaborate moves, it's just... you're like, be careful with those things. Exactly, those things you're gonna, are dangerous. You're going to poke an eye out. <laughs> well, right. uh, I think that point is a good uh, segue into my first pick. Perfect. Which uh, stars Liam Neeson. And features a really impressively realistic sword fight. It is Rob Roy, and it is available for rent on iTunes, Google, Voodoo, and YouTube. This is the 1995 film directed by Michael Caton Jones. Um, it was the brawny action movie that Liam Neeson made before he became everyone's favorite dad-like brawny action star. <laughs> uh, he plays the 18th century Scottish historical figure Rob Roy. Uh, Rob Roy McGregor. Jessica Lange is his wife, Mary. Basically, the storyline goes that he gets a loan from the the Marquis, uh, uh, played by John Hurt. Um, And his, the Marquis's rakish, debauched nephew, uh, Archibald Cunningham, played by Tim Roth, steals it and basically puts Rob Roy in this impossible position and things escalate between them. And at the end, there's arranged a duel between them. And up until, like, the movie is is like an okay movie, but the duel at the end is pretty fantastic. Uh, and it's, a, in general, really entertaining Tim Roth performance because Archibald Cunningham, which is a hilarious name already, uh, is this very, like, foppish, like, w- like powdered wig tights kind of uh, rake, you know, who gets sent to the Highlands to basically stay out of trouble. But he's also an amazing swordsman. And as they go about in this fight, you, in the sword fight, it's clear from the outset that uh, Rob Roy is outmatched easily. And uh, they have different swords. Like Rob Roy has this, um, has a kind of thicker sword and just hacks and slashes. And uh, uh, Archibald Cunningham has a rapier type sword and just toys with him, just is so much faster than he is and just kind of like slices at him and slices at him. Obviously, though, he does not win. You are here on a matter of honor. I am here to assure you settle it honorably. There will be no backstabbing. You will not throw your blades, nor will you use weapons other than agreed. If quarter is asked... No quarter will be asked. Or given. Attend upon your weapons and commence upon my mark. But uh, what's really interesting about this scene, uh, beyond just how it's sta- it's like fought in bursts, which is the way I feel people realistically would fight, sort of, you know, right. that you clash and then you walk away for a bit. Mm-hmm. And Catch that, your breath. Yes. And that Liam Neeson, by the end, he's, he's like, his character is exhausted, like is like barely, like is gasping for breath, which is, I don't remember ever seeing something like that. <laughs> in uh in a movie when do you ever see someone get really tired (laughs) you know (laughs) it must be very tiring right and not just that but um you know there's there's this interesting sense of like pleasure that comes from tim roth's character it's like really the one thing that he's great at he he otherwise has so much self-loathing uh and self-awareness uh and yet you know of his place in the world but uh, when he's sword fighting, he's uh, at his best in a way, but is also very sadistic. And Liam Neeson also manages to look 
terrified in a lot of these scenes because he knows that he's just not as good at this. Um, so it's a great scene if you want to skip the movie, which I, I don't encourage because context is good. And it really is. I mean, like Liam Neeson's very solid. But it's a great Tim Roth performance. But this fight scene is also uh, this sword fight scene is on YouTube. So, so you, you can find it there it if you want to skip to the end. Uh, I, I, I do like it quite a bit. That is Rob Roy. It is available for rent on iTunes, Google, Vudu and YouTube. OK, I've actually never seen that movie. Um, but now I'm, I'm glad to know I've heard I've always heard it has a great sword fight at the end. And I'm glad to know I can now watch it on YouTube without having to watch <laughs> the movie. That's great. Uh, my first pick is the film I really uh, think of as sort of my platonic ideal of uh, of a sword fight in movies. It's you know, the first thing I thought of when we decided to do this topic. And if you ask me to close my eyes and picture a sword fight in a movie, this is what would come to mind. It's The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. Directed by Michael Curtiz and available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. And the whole movie is uh, is fantastic. But really, specifically, I'm thinking of the final uh, sword fight at the end of the movie between Errol Flynn as Robin Hood and Basil Rathbone as Sir Guy. They're dueling through these enormous columns. They kind of fight their way out of the frame. And there's this amazing moment where they sort of fight their way off screen into the foreground and all of a sudden their shadows are projected onto this column. You know, it gives you this great sense of this epic mythic struggle between these two men. And then they come back into frame and they're still fighting. And I upset your plans. You've come to Nottingham once too often. When this is over, my friend, there'll be no need for me to come again. The movie is from 1938, so this is 70 years old. So it may not be the most spectacular in terms of choreography and moves. I, I think probably some of those things have improved in uh, in the last seven decades. But then again, I mean, you have a guy, Michael Curtiz, the director, who's most famous for Casablanca, who I think really knew how to shoot a scene like this. And he doesn't mess it up with a lot of flashy editing and close-ups that somebody making this movie today might have done. So there's something to be said about the fact that it's it's old. There's something pleasurable in this case if you prefer this style um, because you can see that it's definitely uh, Flynn and Rathbone who are really going at it, and they have these sequences where you know they're really going back and forth, and uh, and uh, you know without a lot of cutting, you can see the the movements. And the space is so well-defined, you can really follow where they're going and what's going on. And again, the, the choreography is not Revenge of the Sith, but it's it's believable to the, you know, but not so, it's not Star Wars where they're just go, clanging back and forth, but it's not Revenge of the Sith either. It really strikes a nice balance where it's it's gritty, but it also is exciting as well. And, it, you know, the rest of the film is great too. It's a classic swashbuckler. Errol Flynn at his... No one buckled swashes better than errol flynn definitely not youthful charismatic you know he's got this big smile on his face while he's battling for it's like sort of the opposite of rob roy where you're like you know it feels really raw and you feel like somebody's gonna die at the end of this he's like ha ha i am sword fighting like they make living in the woods look so comfortable i remember like it just looks really cozy yes and uh it all looks especially cozy because of the technicolor photography which is absolutely beautiful uh, the last, you know, the last thing I would say is I think sometimes, and I know I even I've been guilty of this, Allison. I think there's a tendency, you see one version of a famous story out of like five movies, and you say, well, I don't have to see the other versions. I've seen this one, so I kind of feel like I've already seen it. You know, you you saw 
uh, Tarkovsky Solaris. I don't need to see Steven Soderbergh Solaris. I've seen Kenneth Branagh as Hamlet. Well, I need to see all the other Hamlets for you know. I don't need to see uh, Michael Amaretta's or I don't need to see Mel Gibson's, you know. Or or in this case, you know, maybe you've seen Ridley Scott's Robin Hood or Kevin Costner's Robin Hood or even the Disney Robin Hood, which is a great movie it too. Is great. I love the 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 Robin Hood from Disney. But if if you haven't seen this Robin Hood, the Adventures of Robin Hood, you still need to. I would urge you to check it out. But if you want to be lazy, the Vinyl Vite is also <laughs> on YouTube, and you can watch that part there. But if you're looking for the whole thing, which I recommend, that's The Adventures of Robin Hood, available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. So um, when I was growing up, we had this on VHS. Yes. I think I've seen this movie about 40 times. I think you have mentioned that yeah. uh, previously, that yeah. this was a childhood favorite. I love it. Yeah. And so I don't know if that attests to anyone wanting to try that, try it on their children to see how it goes over now. Um, I don't know if like there's any difference, but I feel like it's a pretty entertaining, it's a pretty entertaining movie for all ages. Definitely. So I'll just say that. Which brings me to our, my second pick, which is actually a TV series. It is Samurai Champloo, which is currently streaming on Netflix and on Hulu. It uh, is a 2004 to 2005 anime series uh, from Shinichiro Watanabe, who also did Cowboy Bebop, if you ever saw that. Another really enjoyable series. But Samurai Champloo is an, an kind of anachronistic genre blend. Actually, it's a little like Ghost Dog in the way that it's it's like a hip-hop samurai saga. Mm-hmm. But it's set in, the, in Edo, Japan, and is about... Uh, a young girl from, who's working as a waitress in a tea shop who recruits two ronin, one named Jin, who is a traditionally trained but disgraced samurai, and the other named Mugen, who is like this disreputable guy from the islands who's wild and fights in this much more erratic way that's vaguely, this sounds terrible, but it's actually awesome, vaguely breakdance influenced, <laughs> including he has... This is like a historical, right? It's like set in historical Japan. He has metal plates on the bottom of his sandals that he Mm. uses sometimes to block uh, swords. And it's 26 episodes, 22 minutes each. Goes down incredibly easy. It's just so clever and enjoyable. And uh, each, because this is based on kind of a traditional, your traditional... um, I think it's called a Chanbara, which is like the samurai movie, like okay. in the way that we'd have a Western, right? Uh, it's based on that. It, it Each episode tends to kind of build up to a sword fight of some sort. Um, and because it's animated, you're not having to deal with the boundary, you know, physical boundaries. And the, it allows for some kind of great scenarios, um, especially since they have, there's two very different styles of fighting on display. Um, you know, the, the traditional style and then this completely like freestyle, um, self-taught version. It's a really great series. It's, it's funny. There's a a sequence in which there's an eating competition. There's another one that has like a Yojimbo style competing gangs in a town scenario. Uh, and increasingly difficult fights as as the group goes along, but uh, it's also just a melange of like different stylistic influences that works really well. Uh, it, it's even if you're not particularly an anime fan, I think that this is is something that's accessible to everyone, and it's self-contained. There's only one season, so if you start it, you don't have to worry about additional pileup of things that you might need to catch up on. That is Samurai Champloo. 
It is currently streaming on Netflix and Hulu. And it is Shamplu. Yes. How do you spell that? C-H-A-M-P-L-O-O. Okay. Figured people would want the spelling if they're going to go look for it because it sounds really interesting. Okay. My second pick here is... uh... Uh, well, I would say more traditional uh, to, uh, or maybe more influential to, say, the, the ghost dog milieu. It is The Tale of Zatoichi from 1962. And Zatoichi is, uh, you know, a major figure in Japanese popular culture. He's this blind swordsman who wanders the countryside, uh, you know, getting into adventures and basically just being the world's biggest badass um, because even though he he can't see, he's the best sword fighter basically in the entire world. And there were 25 Zatoichi films made between 1962 and 1973, uh, starring Sintaru Katsu as Zatoichi. He made one final film as the character in 1989, and there's also a Zatoichi TV series during the 70s. And then in 2003, Takeshi Kitano made his own Zatoichi movie where he wrote and directed and also starred as... Zatoichi. And I had actually seen that film when it came out, and I liked it. But I had never seen any of those original 60s and 70s Zatoichi films. But as luck would have it, given our subject matter this week, Allison, Criterion, which recently put out all those Zatoichi films in one gigantic box set, recently made the first 25 films available on Hulu+. Plus, So you can watch all of them on Hulu+. Plus. Uh, but I... Having not seen any of them, obviously started with number one. So that is uh, The Tale of Zatoichi, which is what I'm going to recommend. But I really liked it. I'm looking forward to watching more of these movies. I wish I had time to just stop watching everything else in my life. And, I mean, that would be a binge watch. Forget 25 episodes of an hour-long series. We're talking 25 full-length movies. That would be really, really something. Uh, From a sword-fighting perspective, too, this movie is really cool. I mean, Zatoichi, what he reminds me of as a comic book nerd is he's kind of like Daredevil, who actually premiered in comic books right around the same time, 1964. So maybe there was something in the culture around that time. Uh, Somebody needs to write a piece about that, I guess. But There is actually also a blind fighter in Samurai Shemplu. Interesting. Yes. Well, it's something that it just makes... Yeah. It's 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 an interesting idea, right? And also the idea that someone might have like kind of use their senses in a different right. way. And right? that's Which sort of what, what you does. see. Yeah. With Zatoichi is he's kind of has kind of heightened senses, sort of like what I was saying with Daredevil. Like they'll have these wonderful close-ups of his ear or his nose, or, you know, he's smelling for perfumes in the air or he can, he hears a twig snap and he knows where the person he's fighting is in terms of his like fighting style though. He's incredibly still and then all of a sudden, he has these like lightning fast moves where, like, from absolute stop, you you know make three flourishes, and you know the three guys surrounding him will all you know be uh, dropped like a sack of potatoes. And uh, the director Kenji Mizumi does this really cool thing where a lot of times, in terms of these quick movements, you know Zatoichi will be standing totally still, and then there'll be a cut when he starts to attack and. Literally in like a matter of frames, like less than a second, like in the time of the cut, he's done something. So when we cut, uh, like he's already gone from stop to stop again and he's sliced a candle in two that's lit and the the thing is sliced perfectly in half and it's still lit. Right. You know, like and you don't cu- see the movement at all, right? But you don't yeah. see the movement. Exactly. So it's almost like he's faster than light or something it's, uh, it's what they used for comic effect in blazing saddles exactly yes the scene with gene wilder with his his quick draw you're exactly right and there it's it's a comedy here it, it almost it's like 
it kind of makes it feel like because you know it's like he's blind but he's so fast he's not at a disadvantage because we can't see him because his opponents can't see him which i think is such a cool touch like I said, I haven't seen any of the other movies, but I would hope that they carry that through throughout that whole 25 film series because I just thought the way that that's sh- shot in some of the, the scenes where he uses his sword is really wonderful. And uh, yeah, again, the first one that I watched is great. I recommend that. That's The Tale of Zadoichi. But if you go on Hulu Plus and search for Zadoichi, you'll find 25 films that you could you could take a deep deep dive on blind japanese swordsman movies if that's what you want but yeah again one more time that's the tale of zadoichi available on hulu plus the way the samurai is found in death meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily every day when one's body and mind are at peace one should meditate upon being ripped apart by arrows rifles spears and swords being carried away by surging waves being thrown into the midst of a great fire, being struck by lightning, being shaken to death by a great earthquake, falling from thousand-foot cliffs, dying of disease, or committing seppuku at the death of one's master. And every day, without fail, one should consider himself as dead. This is the substance of the way of the samurai. Well, that brings us to our listener's choice section, where each episode we give you three streaming selections and you vote on which one we should review. With Jim Jarmusch's latest film, Only Lovers Left Alive, opening in theaters, we gave you three more Jarmusch options. His first film, Permanent Vacation, his 1986 breakout, Down by Law, and 1999's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, one of his higher profile works. And Ghost Dog easily won with 57% of the vote. Yes. Ghost Dog was Jarmusch's follow-up to Dead Man, though he also made the Neil Young concert doc Year of the Horse in between. It stars Forrest Whitaker as the title character, a man who has devoted himself to the Hagakure, the Code of the Samurai, and who lives in Jersey City, though it's never named, in a rooftop shack with some pigeons, carrying out hits for Louis, played by John Torme, who is a member of the mob. Ghost Dog sees himself as Louis' retainer, as a modern-day parallel to a samurai and his master, but Louis no ancient Japanese aristocrat, just a tired mid-level mobster, and he gets them both into trouble when he has Ghost Dog take out another maid man who happens to be sleeping with their, bo- their mob boss's daughter, and soon the rest of the gangsters are turning their blame on him. Ghost Dog is a kind of genre mashup, it's both hip-hop influenced, with a soundtrack by Wu-Tang Clan's RZA, who also has a cameo in the film, and a clear homage to Jean-Pierre Pierre Melville's 1967 film The Samurai, except unlike Alain Delon's character in that film, who is impeccably cool and beautiful in his signature trench coat, Ghost Dog and his surroundings are deliberately shabbier and inescapably contemporary. And that includes the guys he ends up battling. So before we get to the central character, Matt, I wanted to know what you thought of the film's representation of the mafia. Uh, The film's representation of the mafia, I thought was, I don't know, I didn't really dwell on it that much. I mean, was there something that stuck out about it to you that made made it so notable? The general, like, 
sadness of it. There's a certain part uh. where uh, the guys, the you know, the mob guys are in there wherever they meet, right. and then. The, someone comes around and says you're three three months late on rent you know right. like i'm gonna call the cops basically like there's a real sense that a lot of the dignity of what they've been doing is gone yeah that's a good point yes there there is something to that and uh, there's something also about that that fadedness of their lifestyle that certainly mirrors the lost art of the samurai you know there's the sense of these different cultures uh, of bygone eras that have essentially died out but are being kept alive by these last vestigial tales so to speak that are um you know that are just the, the you know in a sense you could title this movie only lovers left alive i suppose <laughs> because these are these these people who are, are are upholding these traditions which are kind of already gone from the world even though they're being practiced uh, by these very small subcultures so yeah that's there, and it's certainly now that you pointed out, it's I absolutely can see what you're saying. I guess I didn't, it didn't really, I don't know. They're sort of played in a lot of cases for comedy, so that I didn't really get a ton of pathos from most of the characters, except for Louis, who you know is sort of the main uh, central focal point of the mobster uh, storyline. Who I think has a very nice arc, and the actor was not someone I recognized, and I was like, I think he's really good in it, and I'm sort of. I'm curious. I didn't have time to look, but like, I'm curious. Like, what? Ha- like, how That's, did he? This is what he's most famous for. Yeah. What? Role. How did he not wind up in other films or even in The Sopranos or something? Or maybe he had a small role that I don't remember. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's really good. He so is really good, yeah, uh, that would be sort of my take on the on the mobster element of it. And there's all. I mean, there's also parts. Uh, there's this almost a sense that ghost dog. I mean, like they literally say it at one point. Um, one of the mobsters says, you know, there's one good thing about this ghost dog guy. He's sending us out the old way. Yes. Like real gangsters. Yes. That it's almost an act of grace on his part. And that's echoed in some of the ways in which characters die. Yes. That like wanting to go out the with, the right way right, with dignity right way, with like dignity. a warrior and and that's very much like uh, not to spoil anything in Zadoichi, but there is a character who at one point is you know says to another character like I wanted you to kill me I'm glad it was you you know this this character who's like sick and dying of like a disease but he would rather be killed at the end of this other character's sword you know that's the that's the samurai way that's the right way to go out and yes that's certainly something that uh, I was thinking about when I was watching it that 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 is certainly present in the film not just from the ghost dog side of things but like you said also from the the mobster side of things yeah so i remember this film definitely running on cable uh and and i would always catch parts of it Mm -hmm. and i i never i could never take to forrest whitaker's character though watching it from the beginning now finally Mm -hmm. i i liked the sense that he wasn't supposed to be graceful necessarily you know that there was something a little there was there's a deliberate awkwardness to him. Right. I don't know. I, what did you think of, of him in this role and how he's portrayed? Uh, yeah. mm. It's an interesting question because just because, like, I think we're getting around, like, just what we thought of the movie. And like I said, I had never seen this movie before. And I liked it, but I didn't really love it. You know, I sort of expected, given its reputation and it's become such a cult film, that I expected to like it more. And I think what you're kind of getting at is the fact that it's a character study of a character who is – you know, he's such an absence. We really don't learn anything about him other than this incident from his past, which sort of set him on the path that he's on now, which is to be, as he calls himself, the retainer to Louis, to this mid-level mobster. 
that because of this incident that happened when he was like what i don't know younger teenager but it's not even really passes in between right it's It's not not like it happens right away it's not clear when that happened he's because he even says that louis says he he, yeah yeah, years past he found me like four years ago so to suggest that time elapsed in between and we don't really know uh, what happened in between and we don't know what happened before this one incident that we see uh but it's not really necessarily a movie about plot you know it's not about there is a story um but one of the things that I didn't particularly care for about it was that the story seems to sort of wrap up with like a half hour left, you know, almost. And what you're left with in that last bit is sort of resolving some of the remaining character stuff and, and again, really focusing on him. And it is sort of interesting to watch in a procedural sort of way, the way he goes about his life and cares for his weapons and, you know, trains with a sword, even though he, like we said before, he never uses it in, in his in his uh in his job or the way that he carries out these hits which are so incredibly professional but on the other hand he's so good and effective in terms of like he has doohickeys that like can magically not only unlock cars but turn them on and he's just generally 10 steps ahead of everyone he's against that there's no i don't know that didn't really feel like there was a lot of even tension in the story in terms of i didn't really feel like um, the mobsters who now after he commits this, you know, he does this hit, they're supposedly coming after him. I didn't really even feel like they posed much of a threat to him. So you're left with a story that's not all that tense about a character who's interesting, but we don't really ever learn that much about him. So I felt like while it's well made and there's some things I really liked, including like the music, which I felt like added this kind of very interesting flavor to the movie. I don't know. I just didn't, it didn't really, it kept me at arm's length. I didn't really fall in love with it as much as I sort of liked it and kind of admired the craft of it. I think that I, as much as I can like Jim Jarmusch's films sometimes, that arm's length is kind of his thing, right? Yeah. It's kind of like he has a sense of cool. Right. But that also leads to a certain emotional reserve. Right. It's, it's, now that you mentioned that, I mean, it's very similar to the last one of his movies I think I saw, which was The Limits of Control, which was about a hitman. Even more, I mean, that one's even more remote. Even icier and even more remote and even more about process and, uh, I think the the actor is in this movie, right? He's it's the same. He's the ice, yeah, yeah, he's the he's the and ice cream I, I man. Did, I loved their relationship. That right. I think is this, maybe the strongest part of the film, which right. is that Isaac de Bancolet plays a character who does not speak English, only speaks French. Yeah, and and he's Ghost the local Dog ice cream not, man, yes. and and he befriends Ghost Dog, yeah. but they don't speak each other's languages. But they often say the same thing, yes, which is like very cute. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there there is a sense of like genuine rapport between them that's uh, that, that I like a lot. But right. yeah, I I think that. I kind of came around to the fact that Forrest Whitaker seems so physically unsuited, do you know, to in some ways to like a kind of a role that you would consider maybe like physical in this way. Right. You know, he's kind of this bird, like a character compares him to a bear at one point, mm-hmm. and he does kind of have that. You know, he's not graceful. Right, he's not like light he on his with, feet. The thing he does with the, the gun, it, it looks a little silly, you know? Right. That, like it looks a little affected, which is something that I kind of, I liked uh, it fits just, the character. It fits the character that, right. like he, there's this kind of considerable divide right. in a way that, say, in Le Samurai, the, the the divide is less important because, in a way, there's this aesthetic pleasure there. You know, mm. like the, there's a much starker divide here in that he's attached to this way of life, but he's living in Jersey City. You know, <laughs> like that there there's no place that seems less 
related to you know ancient Japan and a kind of a certain grace right. uh, of this aristocratic code. That, right, and uh, there's nothing noble or heroic about what he's doing. He's no. he's a hitman. You right. know, like he's performing hits on people. It's not like he's he's saving a damsel or something like that. He is he's a he's a killer. He's a contract killer. Right, and the the whole idea that he's committed to is the idea of service, right? Like the idea of serving Louis. Right. Well, even though Louis, another thing is like, you see flashbacks to that moment where they met, where Mm -hmm. Louis saved his life. And in in Ghost Dog's flashback, Louis saves his life, like comes and stops this mugging or whatever and like kills a guy. And in Louis's flashback, he just shoots the guy because it's, the guy turns around and is going to shoot him. Mm -hmm. So like, even I think, that has an aspect of like sadness to it. And you know, that like, it's not even the moment that he like is so marked him, uh, is not necessarily, it didn't necessarily go that way. Right. Yeah. And I, I like this movie though. I, I would agree that it also, I do feel like it kind of holds you, uh, at a distance a bit. The thing that I do think has emotional resonance is this idea of, of ghost dog in a way, like providing Louis with, this i mean what he wants in a way you know like he at a certain point there's a confrontation they have towards the end where he says you know it's very dramatic louis you know like is kind of giving him this macho moment mm-hmm. you know to be a gangster mm-hmm. and that like that's almost part of his commitment to serving as his retainer you know is to give him this thing uh and there is something to that that uh i thought was the kind of weird but touching yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, I think the thing that the things that resonated most strongly with me were just sort of like the ideas of even the the fact that Ghost Dog, what he's doing, he is like the perfect assassin essentially, and he's doing nothing but a good job. But because he's sort of not doing things the right way, or he does this one job where there's this complication that no fault of his own, he didn't do anything wrong. And then there's these undertones of there's a racial component, you know, that the fact that he's black is a problem for these, you know, old school racist mobsters. Just that, like, essentially everything falls apart, even though it was working perfectly. And just that idea that, uh, you know, any system, you know, can fall apart so easily and completely and just uh, uh, something that I don't know resonated with me in this movie that I thought was a an interesting element of it. And 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 again, that the idea that he's kind of fashioned himself into this character basically without any real world experience. Like he's read this book and we hear him reading the book aloud and like reciting passages from it as the voiceover track. And I think, I think it's safe to assume, although we never see him do it, that he's, he's watched a fair number of samurai movies, which I think is where you kind of like, for example, the thing with the, with the gun and and the sort of way he bandies it around it. I mean, it looks like the way you would watch a samurai movie and then copy it, except you or I wouldn't, do it in real life with a gun as a hitman but this character does and i think there's something kind of a little bit tragic about him in that in that idea of sort of like wanting to have this noble life and not and life itself not actually providing it yeah and and, you know and there's like not just the stuff with again he's working for the mob as a contract killer not as a noble you know sort of like a bodyguard or something like that uh, these these characters certainly don't deserve his his you know protection or something based on morality or anything like that. But also just some of the early scenes of the movie, like including during the cl- the opening credits, where he's kind of driving around the city, which we don't even know where it is. But there's these really kind of gritty, 
it's you know, blended. right down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just urban, just decay everywhere he looks. And sort of wanting to kind of have this, you know, like kind of like refashion the world into this better or more simplistic place. I think there's something interesting about that as well. And that idea comes through very clearly in the film. It's just that I, I, you know, like to me, that was the stuff I was ultimately focusing on. And maybe that's what I'm supposed to be focusing on. I just I think I just wanted a little bit more, either more from the story, which kind of resolves itself in my mind very easily and without a lot of drama and, and tension. And again, like there's this, you know, like, you know, it's not like the Wild Bunch where it's like there's or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where, you know, there's kind of this like, are they going to survive doomed sort of a thing? It's hard to imagine anyone even like hurting Ghost Dog because he's like, it's almost like James Bond and Q put together. Like he has gadgets and he he can he outthinks everyone. And he's also incredibly like he's just like. He's a perfect shot. I don't know if he ever misses a single bullet in the entire movie. So I just – there's just not a lot of – you know, once you get the flavor of that, there's just not a lot of what's going to happen because you kind of know what's going to happen. And, 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 and there are some really intriguing questions about um, the character, and a lot of times it can be fun to have those questions linger or have stuff to decide for yourself. But I don't think there's enough here to really get to that place where it's fun to really debate. It's like there, there needs to be like just a little bit more, more style than substance. Yeah. Well, for sure. Absolutely. I will say before we wrap this up, the Hagakure, the thing he's reading, which were like, I think dictated or written by a samurai, even like the samurai who, who is responsible for that. It was kind of as the eight, like kind of maybe a hundred years past the, big age of the samurai and a lot of this code was being dictated by him i think because he was worried that it was changing or being lost oh that's interesting yeah so even that has a sense of era an era kind of eluding you and escaping you and passing yeah of like time passing you by i mean i just saw this movie the same day i rewatched grand budapest hotel for this second time and that, that that theme i mean they would make a good double feature for anyone in that sense, because that theme is really prevalent in both of them. That idea of like these, this past faded glorious age, which is basically already extinct, but there's people still holding on to it and in, in kind of a romantic way, basically. Yeah. So that is ghost dog, the way of the samurai. And it is currently available to stream on Netflix. Well, that brings us to our Behind the Eight Ball section in which we give you three picks that are new to streaming, two listener recommendations, and one item chosen blindly from our Netflix My List. Matt, are you ready? I am ready. All right. Three new picks. Okay. One of my favorite movies of the last decade is my first pick. It's The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, starring Matthew Almerich as Jean-Dominique Bobby, this man who suffers this stroke and wakes up in the hospital uh, completely paralyzed he can't move any part of his body except one single eyelid and the film is about him coming to grips with his illness and then learning to like write his story using that one eyelid to blink out his memoirs a single letter at a time like blink by blink by blink thousands thousands of blinks uh the film is directed by julian schnabel and he really uses incredible point of view camera work to put you inside this character's head right after he's had the stroke and like wakes up in the hospital and experience what that paralysis might be like a little bit from his perspective. And it's just an incredibly, incredibly powerful film. It's, it's beautiful. It's uh, not to be watched without some tissues nearby. It's, it's uh, not, not the most 
lighthearted film, but it is it's a very, very worthwhile one. So that's A Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's now available on Netflix. Also available on Netflix is Steven Spielberg's follow-up to Jaws, his second big film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, a, a very personal story for Spielberg, I think, about a restless family man played by Richard Dreyfus, who has this altercation with an un- unidentified flying object and then finds himself inexplicably drawn to this uh, this mountain. I don't know what it is, Devil's Tower in Wyoming. I'm not really sure what that counts as, a mountain or some kind of rock formation, whatever it is. Uh, Close Encounters is not one of my favorite Spielberg movies per se. Um, but some of the things that I have trouble with I find kind of interesting, particularly the fact that it basically celebrates this guy for being a deadbeat dad. Yep. You know, I mean, he essentially abandons his family. It gives to... him the okay. It's like they're really annoying. That's right. Like... Yeah, it kind of dep- – there's different versions of the film, and depending on which version you see, like the wife character is kind of portrayed pretty negatively, you know, and as as you said, to sort of like – kind of excuse his the fact that he like leaves these people or they leave him i guess but then he then he no, had... he leaves them <laughs> he really leaves right especially at the end <laughs> uh right um but th- those scenes though the with the end are, are really incredible and beautiful where these human scientists are trying to communicate with this alien vessel using sounds and lights and stuff it's it's really incredible um, the version that's on Netflix is the director's cut, which is the third version. There was the theatrical cut, then a special edition, and then this director's cut from 1998. And actually, I've seen all three versions, and that director's cut version, the version they have, is, I think, the best version. So if you're going to see it for the first time, that's not a bad way to go. So that's Close Encounters of the Third Kind on Netflix. And finally, a movie that is arguably even more profound than The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, even more powerful than Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Death Wish 3. The first Death Wish, of course, a a fairly, although not entirely sober film about a man played by Charles Bronson who finds his wife uh, murdered and his daughter raped and he decides to become a vigilante. Uh, That film at least had some ideas on its mind about justice, about violence about cities and you know the the emotional toll of vengeance death wish 3 is basically like airplane or the naked gun if airplane or the naked gun didn't realize that it was a joke i mean it is one of the most incredible unintentionally hilarious movies you've ever seen set in a new york city that makes the new york city of the warriors look like a a documentary or something it's just gangs roving the streets in broad daylight the cops are powerless to stop them and only Charles Bronson can save the day. It is completely insane. Um, and the only reason I would say not to watch it on Netflix is because it's it's a lot funnier with a crowd. So if you're going to watch it on Netflix, try to do it with some friends and probably a couple of uh, drinks as well. It'll be a good time. So that's Death Wish 3 available on Netflix. All right. Two listener recommendations. My first one is from a listener in Australia. I think we had a New Zealand listener on our last episode. Now we've got Australia. I like it. Let's Let's get... I want a listener from Antarctica. That would be really exciting. So if you're listening in Antarctica, send us an email, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Anyway, this is from Paul in Australia, and he says, As movie buffs, we want to say we watch highbrow, well-reviewed films all the time, but sometimes we are just in the mood for some fluffy, mindless, romantic garbage. Uh, The next time you have one of these cravings, may I humbly suggest Beauty and the Briefcase, which is currently streaming on Netflix. The film revolves around Lane Daniels, played by Hilary Duff, in a very likable performance. 
says Paul. Going undercover in a New York office to write a cover story on office dating rituals for Cosmo magazine. It's all very stupid, but it's completely unrealistic <laughs> depiction of an office. Veers into so bad it's good territory. And the leads are all quite charming, including True Blood's Michael McMillan, a definite guilty pleasure if you believe in such things. So that is Beauty and the Briefcase. Brilliant title. That's a great title, and it's available on Netflix. And finally, we, we you know we always ask for people to email us. Email us your recommendations, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. We always put this on Twitter, and invariably we get people writing in on Twitter. So send us your emails, but in this case, I'm going to read one from... Uh, from from Twitter, this was from our listener Chris F. on Twitter. He says, I'm watching Wrong, and it is so right. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist the wordplay. And Wrong, this is the, uh, I don't know if it's the latest. I think he's made another film since then. But he one has, of the yeah. recent films from Quentin Dupieux, who did Rubber, which was the movie about the killer tire, which, frankly, I hated. But uh, <laughs> people love this guy. And Wrong is another very strange, surreal movie he made. I'll read the plot description from Netflix which is where it's streaming right now. When his beloved dog, Paul, goes missing, Dolph Springer scours the town for him. In the process, he affects the lives of an offbeat pet detective, a jogging addict, a sexy pizza delivery girl, and others he meets on his mission. Have you seen Wrong? I have not. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I have to admit, I haven't been dying to see it because I was not a big rubber fan. But I don't know. Chris likes it, so maybe I should, maybe I should give him a second chance. Maybe this one will turn me around. I don't know. We'll see. So that's wrong, and that is also streaming on Netflix. Okay, and one from your My List. You gave me number 88, and on this episode, number 88 is Slacker, uh, Richard Linklater's debut film about a day in the life of a bunch of weirdos in Austin, Texas, circa 1991. I've seen it probably twice, maybe three times, uh, but that's it. And it's been a few years. I'd guess it's been at least five, maybe six, maybe eight years since I've seen it. And so I just added it to the queue when I saw it popped up, or excuse me, my my list when I saw it pop up on Netflix uh, maybe a couple of months or a year or two ago. It's one of those, you know, rainy day picks where you can't decide. You got a million movies to choose from. You can't decide, and you're flipping through the my list here, going through the whole thing, and you go, oh, slacker. Uh, at some point, that's going to happen. That's what I'm going to end up watching. Allison, are you ready to go? Your turn to recommend some movies? All right, let's start with uh, three new titles. All right, first up is The Lady in Number 6. Music Saved My Life, uh, which is currently streaming on Netflix. If you can't tell by the structure of that title, this is obviously a documentary. It's, in fact, a documentary short about Eliza Summer Hertz, who was the world's oldest Holocaust survivor. She passed away in February at age 110. Um, she was a concert pianist who actually ended up playing music in the camps in World War II um, when she was put in the camps. This film, I mentioned it particularly because it won the Oscar for Best Short Doc. And I like that Netflix picked it up. There really aren't always great ways to see the Oscar winning or you know Oscar nominated shorts other than when they're given a tour of the in theaters, you know, really quickly. But you don't always see them on streaming. So I think the fact that Netflix picked it up is great. Um, and it, it went up, you know, shortly after the film ended up winning the Oscar. They they picked it up before it won the Oscar, so they, they lucked out. Uh, so that is The Lady in Number 6, Music Saved My Life, streaming on Netflix. New to Fandor is Night Tide. This is a 1961 black and white thriller written and directed by Curtis Harrington and starring Dennis Hopper in his first leading role. He plays a sailor who falls in love with a woman who works 
at a sideshow as a mermaid. And she's also convinced that in real life, she's descended from the sirens because all of her past lovers have died. So it's kind of an interesting thriller in which he's trying to convince her that she's not, you know, this mystical being and that he's also not going to end up dead. Um, it's Night Tide. It's available on Fangor. And finally, uh, new to Netflix is Angel Heart, directed by Alan Parker, starring Mickey Rourke as oh Private Eye Harry Angel. Robert De Niro as, I don't even want to go into it, but it's fantastic. And Lisa Bonet also as a character. I'm not going to go into too much because it's disturbing. Um, but this is just the completely bonkers. It's banana pants. Noir, uh, involving voodoo and deals with the devil. Voodoo. It's, uh, it was controversial at the time, but it is so enjoyably crazy. Um, and, you know. He's got Mickey Rourke in there, too. How can you go wrong? <laughs> um, that is Angel Heart, and it is available for streaming on Netflix. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? All right. Our first one is from Jason, who says, If you need a fix of a ruthless, twist-filled, well-directed drama filled with extremely intelligent and complex characters constantly trying to backstab each other, you can do a lot worse than damages on Netflix. It's tightly plotted. Often it jumps between the end of the season's events and the beginning. And the quality of acting done by Glenn Close, Rose Byrne, Ted Danson, William Hurt, Martin Short, and many others often ranks among their best work. Anyone who likes House of Cards but dismiss damages as just one of those lesser basic cable dramas from a few years ago, like I did before Wising Up, should really try it out. So that is Damages. It is streaming on Netflix. And Patrick writes... I'm not sure that I'd recommend this per se, but I happened upon a so bad it's good oddity and I really need to, someone to acknowledge that this actually exists and I'm not having some kind of horrible fever dream. Uh. MTV's Wuthering Heights from 2003, now for rent on Amazon. That's right. One of literature's most passionate and poignant tales told with all the nuance you would expect of an early 2000s MTV made-for-TV movie starring Erica Christensen and Mike Vogel. Wow. This time Heathcliff has been shortened to Heath, and he's now a brooding rock star, and the titular lighthouse's name has been shortened to the much hipper The Heights. Sadly, there's, uh, there is no point at which Heath sings, How Do You Talk to an Angel? Missed Opportunity. <laughs> What really pushes this over from weirdly watchable train wreck into schlock masterpiece is the soundtrack written by Grammy-winning record producer Jim Steinman. Steinman, you may remember as the author of the 90s Torch song, It's All Coming Back to Me Now, which may explain why the whole movie feels like teenage lotion models play-acting their way through a Celine Dion music video. Catherine Heigl co-stars. Sold! Wow. <laughs> Do you think like MTV was like Wuthering Heights? That sounds like it's like near the Jersey Shore, right? That's like pretty much the same. It's like a sequel almost. That's probably that's exactly probably what happened. How that happened? I yeah. think so. So uh, that sounds amazingly promising to me, Patrick. And that is available for rent on Amazon. All right, and uh, one random film from your my list. You gave me number twenty nine, which is Bridegroom. This is a doc that premiered at last year's Tribeca Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award. It's about Shane, Bitney Crone, and Tom Bridegroom, who were a couple. Uh, when Bridegroom died in an accident, his family refused to allow Crone to come to the funeral, and he had no legal recourse because they weren't able to get married. This was actually uh, started as a YouTube video that Crone made in 2012. You may remember it. It went viral. It was kind of about his situation. Um, and the director contacted him and made this kind of expanded documentary. So 
I'd heard good things about it. Put it on my my list. Hmm, sounds interesting. All right. Time to get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. This is going to be an interesting trio of films, Allison. We're going back to some newer releases that are all available on demand and online for rental. I think you have the first one, Allison. What is it? It is Afflicted. I think we've brought this up in a past episode um, in our in our first section before. Uh, it is written and directed and stars Derek Lee and Cliff Prowse. Uh, who are Canadian filmmakers. It is a found footage film in which they play guys who are traveling the world. One of them has a mis- you know, alarming encounter with someone, then afterwards starts to exhibit strange signs We've of all been there. Yeah. We've all been there. <laughs> um, this has you know, actually gotten pretty good notices in terms of these days. If you're going to do found footage, you better do it very cleverly because it is mightily overused. Mm. But uh, apparently this is uh, that this manages to do something good. I've also heard it compared to Chronicle a few times just in terms of like the dynamic mm-hmm. and uh, how the guys react when one of them first starts showing signs of a supernatural affliction. So that is Afflicted. It is available for rent and on demand. Okay. Option two. I think we might have also mentioned uh, on the podcast, possibly as a VOD uh, opening break title, but it's available now also online. So it's something I'm looking forward to watching. And that is Alan Partridge, the film, and that is uh, available on iTunes and Amazon now, as well as VOD, directed by Declan Lowney. And the plot synopsis I have here says, Legendary blowhard Alan Partridge, made famous by funny man Steve Coogan, has become an obscure radio host in this new page from his demented life. When Alan finds out he may be laid off, his response is to try to get a colleague fired instead. And I think it actually gets a lot more complicated from there. But Alan Partridge is this character that uh, Coogan has played for many years on radio and on television in England. Pretty much unknown here, except as sort of a very, very small kind of cultish figure. You have to be really into British comedy to know to know uh, this character, because he's never really appeared over here. But this film... Um, which already did, you know, play in the UK as well. Was is sort of like the first thing that that he's done as Alan Partridge. That's kind of getting a, a bigger release here in the states. Although the TV, some of the TV stuff he's done is is available on like DVD and and stuff like that. But uh, I'm not hugely familiar with the character. But from what I've read, you don't really have to be to enjoy the film. I've spoken with people who hadn't seen any Alan Partridge stuff and enjoyed the movie uh, just because they like Steve Coogan, and I love Steve Coogan, so. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out. So that's Alan Partridge, and that's uh, available on iTunes and Amazon and VOD. It's available a lot of places. All right, and our last pick, which is also available for rent in all of those places, is 47 Ronin. This is a 2013 fantasy action take on the story of the 47 Ronin, which has also been told in some classic Japanese films. This, I don't think, would be called a classic, necessarily, but it stars Keanu Reeves uh, as a half-Japanese, half-British outcast living in medieval Japan. Then there are some demons and things, uh, some crazy-looking special effects, and lots of sword fighting, as we've already discussed on this episode. Interesting fact about this, Matt. According to Wikipedia, 
says with an overall loss of 152 million dollars this film is the biggest box office bomb of all time (laughs) a record previously held by the film mars needs moms well mars does needs moms it's really unfair that people didn't come out to support i will say when i saw this trailer i was like i totally want to see this movie and then i felt like it vanished out of theaters before it did not last (laughs) it did not last very long huge huge bomb so i sincerely want to see this and discuss the insanity that is keanu reeves uh leading this mangling of a classic story yeah well we've honor well we've already established i think with those listener recommendations that we've got an audience that uh apparently likes terrible movies so if that's what they want to make us suffer through this week that they certainly have that option we've got you know screenplay co-written by chris morgan of the fast and furious franchise three through seven yeah (laughs) i'm sure he's very proud of this one i i should have asked about i interviewed him earlier this year do you think if the fast franchise lasts long enough they get to like 47 he'll do a crossover one and be like fast 47 ronin i i would hope so yeah (laughs) (laughs) i hope we just live i all i hope is i I hope hope we live long enough to see it yes all right dream all right well which movie should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video unit send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, April 14th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, at filmspottingsvu, and you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on or around Tuesday, April 22nd. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Ellison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice, where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>